0: Welcome to episode three of the Forensic Files. I'm your host, Dr. N. Today's episode will be a bit different than the other episodes. Last week, I was summoned for jury duty in my local circuit court. I felt it was important to describe my experience, not just that of being on a jury panel, but of my overall impression of the courtroom experience. I'm sure there are many listeners who have never had a courtroom experience, and I have to admit, It was not what I expected. I have lived and voted in three different states over the last 12 years, but this is the first time I've received a jury summons. The way it works, in my area at least, is you're given a number and asked to fill out a preliminary screening survey online. It's pretty short, just a few questions to determine whether you are fit to serve. You have to be a resident of the city you were summoned in You have to be a citizen of the United States, and you can't have any pending criminal charges filed against you. The night before the date for which you are summoned, you have to check to see if your number is part of the list for that day. Mine was smack dab in the middle. All courts have standard prohibited items like weapons and metal objects. This includes silverware, even spoons. The court I attended also prohibited crafting needles, so no knitting for me. After you go through security, you wait in the check-in line, where they give you a badge with your number on it, and instruct you to wait in one of a few waiting rooms until your number is called. The waiting rooms were all very hot, and the Wi-Fi didn't work on my computer. I'm one of the lucky ones, though, whose work pays for days I'm out on jury duty, up to five consecutive days per year. Where I live, you can only be called once a year, and if you serve on a jury for five or more days, they won't call you back at least for three years some people were chatting on the phone some were reading Were doing work on their laptops and some were watching the movies that they had playing on a big screen in the room i sat through all of hidden figures which is excellent by the way every time a judge requests a jury pool they pause the movie and they show the range of numbers that are being called and the location where you should report and they show this for about a few minutes before resuming the movie Since my number was in the middle of a larger range, I had to wait a bit. At around 11.45, my number was eventually called. Unfortunately, we hadn't been let out for lunch yet. They usually give everyone about an hour, but not us. So all 60 or so of us were quite hungry at this time. They escorted us to a large courtroom, had us all sit on the seats behind the attorneys and the defendant. Once you're in the courtroom, you have to turn off all your electronics, including any cell phones or laptops. The entire jury selection process took almost three hours. They give you some basic instructions and then ask the group a set of generic questions to determine if you are fit to serve. Some of these I'd heard before, like asking if we knew anyone involved in the case, including the witnesses, or if we couldn't be unbiased in any way. Some of them I hadn't heard before, like having a family member who had a city job, jobs in the police department, Or having any family members serve time for criminal cases. Given that I live in a larger city known for its crime rate, it wasn't surprising when a lot of people stood up for that last one. But just because you stand up for any of those questions doesn't necessarily mean you'll be dismissed. The judge and attorneys spoke with every person who stood up for any question. One of the questions was whether you'd served on a jury panel before that had come to a unanimous decision. One of the men who stood up for that was later dismissed, though there were people who stood up who ended up on the panel as well. Depending on your circumstances, they will either talk to you for 30 seconds or five minutes. This was the lengthiest part of the process. For the time where they were speaking with potential jurors, the judge turned on the white noise machine. It's meant to block out sound from traveling. In other words, so we couldn't eavesdrop. In some cases, very sensitive personal information can come up, so they try to keep it as confidential as possible. Once they have spoken with everyone and dismissed those who don't meet the criteria, they move on to the actual selection process where they fill 12 jury seats and two alternate seats. They line you up, about five jurors at a time, call your number, and ask for you to stand in front of the attorneys and the defendant. The clerk then asks if the juror is acceptable to the defense, and they give their answer. Then they ask if you're acceptable to the prosecution and they give their answer. Each side has a certain number of strikes where they can respectfully dismiss any juror for any reason. They never tell you why. Juror numbers are called in order and mine was close to the end, so I didn't think that I would make it up there. Once the 12 seats are filled, the judge asks if the panel is acceptable to each side giving them the opportunity to dismiss any juror and fill the spots with another waiting juror. I could tell the prosecution was waiting to make a more curated selection once he saw the box full. My number was getting closer at this point. There were a few more dismissals from both sides. Then I was in line. They accepted the person in front of me. Then the box was full. Darn. Guess it's not my day. But wait. Wait. The prosecutor excused the woman in the second seat. She looks shocked. My number is called. 2663. I walk forward. Both sides find me acceptable. And I take my seat in the second seat. Both sides find the panel acceptable at this point. I made it. Then they go about the process of filling the two alternate spots fairly quickly, and we were finally dismissed for lunch. After an hour recess, we came back to the jury deliberation room reserved for our judge. I am now officially juror number two. I grabbed lunch with juror number one, but I didn't know much about her other than she was retired and took the bus to get there. Once we had gathered back in the deliberation room, the clerk came to gather us and escorted us to a new courtroom. It was a bit smaller, more intimate. At that point, it was 3.45. The judge explained to us how the process was going to work and what our job as jurors was. The clerk repeated the charges against the defendant at this point. She had read them out in the selection room, but I hadn't taken note of what they were until I was actually selected. There were four charges total. Distribution of cocaine, possession and distribution of cocaine, possession of cocaine, and possession of paraphernalia related to the use and distribution of cocaine. The prosecution and defense gave their opening statements. I didn't really pay these much mind. I wanted to see the evidence. Shortly after, the first prosecution witness was called. It was the detective who had arrested the defendant. We watched his body cam footage. Something wasn't lining up. His testimony was a little bit different than what we saw and he kind of waffled on some of the details under cross-examination. Here's the story according to the detectives involved. The detectives were patrolling a block in an area of town known for high drug trafficking. They were in an unmarked vehicle without dash cams. They didn't have their body cams on until they were pursuing the suspect. They claim they were driving north and witnessed two individuals walking south on the opposite side of the road, a black man and a white woman. The detective who testified first, who was not driving, claimed he saw a package in the man's hand, suspected CDS or controlled dangerous substance. He claimed he saw the man look back over his shoulder a few times as they drove past. They decided to make a U-turn to get a better look. And at this point, detectives allege seeing the man pass the package to the woman and both of them started running in opposite directions. They stopped the woman first since she had the package and they asked her to hand over the drugs. She produced them out of her waistband. The officer, as we see on the body cam footage, asks her a couple other questions, then starts running in the direction of the other subject. At this point, we've seen no evidence of a black man or anybody else running away in the body cam footage. We saw the woman, who was later arrested. We see the officer run down the street, around the corner, stopping at an alleyway, Mind you, there are alleys on both sides of the street. He homes in on the one to the left for some reason. He's already made the decision that the suspect must have run that way. He also makes the assumption that he couldn't have gotten all the way down the alley because the officer, quote unquote, booked it after him, and he would have, quote unquote, heard him running through the debris in the alley. Lots of assumptions here. An officer is sent around the front, to make sure no one escapes from the front of the house, if he was in one. The officer spends a long time standing in that alley, looking at the first four or so houses on his right-hand side. He never does a really thorough search of the alley from what we see, and he never even really walks past the fourth house. He spends a long time just standing there, talking with another officer, speculating about where this guy could have gone, talking out loud. The officer around front found a couple men and asked them if they'd seen someone with the description of the guy they were looking for. The men said there was a guy matching that description in the third house. The description was tall black man with dreaded hair, wearing shorts, and either a blue or black top. The color of the t-shirt was up for debate. No one really agreed. The first detective said blue on the body cam. Then someone corrected him over the radio to Black. He claimed in court he corrected himself, though that's not at all what happened. The other detective testified to that. Back to the house. Detectives are trying to find a way of getting in. They have it secure from the front and the back. Then a woman walks up, not too happy, demanding to know what's going on. They tell her they're looking for a man, and the gentleman on the curb said he might be in her house. She gives them permission to search if she can go in first. They agree. Once inside the house, there's music blaring. It is very loud. They clear the downstairs area, and then they head upstairs, clearing the first room, the front room. Then they open the door to the second back bedroom and find a man without a shirt on sitting on the bed. He looks surprised and pretty confused. The officer immediately starts yelling for him to get down, they cuff him, and that's the end of the body cam footage. After the first witness finishes testifying, it's 4.45, the judge tells us we will break for the day and to report back to the deliberation room at 9am the next day. I was then given an official juror number two badge to wear the next day. We were instructed not to talk about the case with anyone until it was over. As a jury, we couldn't discuss the case until the case was heard in full, and we were sent to the room for official deliberations. The next day, the trial started around 9.45. I was prepared for a full day. I brought snacks just in case we got stuck in the deliberation room for some time. We heard two more detective witnesses and one chemist witness for the prosecution. All of the witnesses, I want to note, were sworn in and entered officially into the record as expert witnesses, This is something I talked about in the last episode, and this process was as follows. Their credentials were stated, and experience noted before the prosecutor asked them to be entered as experts in their fields. The detectives were entered as experts in the identification of CDS, and the chemist, who I guess technically is a forensic scientist in a mostly supervisory role for the police department, was entered as an expert in chemistry and identification of CDS. They spent an inordinate amount of time proving to us that the package contained cocaine. Living in this city, I am fully aware of what cocaine looks like, but I understand that legally they had to go through the steps. If it's not cocaine, there aren't any charges to file, right? No one in the jury ever doubted that the package contained cocaine. They showed it to us. It was a significant amount. It was packaged in a way meant for distribution. No arguments there small plastic bags and small vials of powder, along with packets with the rock form, more commonly known as crack, which is a much more potent and deadly substance and comes with a longer potential sentencing time. I don't recall the total amount of cocaine in the package, but it was substantial, much more than personal use. The second detective then took the stand. He was the driver. He was pretty confident in what he saw though he did say the man was wearing a black shirt, which is contrary to the original statement made by his partner. The defense tried to call into question his ability to see the handoff because he was driving and performing the U-turn at the time. This resulted in an objection from the prosecution and the judge told us to ignore that line of questioning. In court, the process of questioning is kind of a game. There are pretty strict rules but also ways around those rules. It can be extremely tedious to listen to witness interrogation because it takes so long to get one piece of usable information out, and the lawyers have to establish all events for the record. So we heard a lot of repeated information. I believe the defense attorney was trying to call into question the detective ever actually witnessing the CDS in the possession of the man they saw on the street. This didn't get very far either. But I saw where she was going with it. He was driving, his partner could have said, hey, I think I saw a pack on him, let's get a better look just to make sure, without this detective ever actually witnessing anything. All speculation, of course, but then again, memories aren't technically fact. If you hear a story enough times, you can start to ingrain that into your own memory of events, even if it's not what you actually saw or heard. This is especially important when it comes to the identification of the defendant as the suspect the detectives were pursuing. The man they found in the house did meet the vague description they gave over the radio, yes. But time and time again, there's troubling evidence that suggests the power of confirmation bias. If you find someone who meets the description and you believe that's the guy you're looking for, your brain can actually alter its own memory of what you saw on the street putting his face on your memory of whoever it was you saw. Now you're sure it's the guy, because that's now your memory. Memories are tough, and the implications are devastating when it comes to victim testimony, which we'll get into in a future episode. The third detective gave a really interesting testimony. He was the last witness, and the defense asked him to describe the man they were looking for, The man on the street. I want to note, this detective was visibly uncomfortable. I don't know why, and it might have nothing to do with the case, but it struck me as odd how uncomfortable he was. He relayed the vague description we heard before, saying it was a black shirt. Okay. Then he pauses, looks at the defendant for the first time since entering the courtroom, and says, oh, and, and glasses, yeah, glasses. The defendant, sure enough, spoiler alert, is wearing thick black framed glasses. Very distinctive, you could see them from a distance, hipster type glasses. Something, I don't know, you might include in a description of a suspect as you were searching and trying to identify him. Nowhere in the body cam footage was there mention of glasses. The first two detectives who saw him never even mentioned glasses. The detective called in his backup He's the one that mentions glasses? Things aren't adding up. I don't know if this guy had anything to do with these drugs, and frankly, at this point, I don't care. Because the state is really bungling this trial. That was it. Those were all the witnesses. The trial was essentially over. Both sides gave their closing arguments, and we were escorted back to the deliberation room. Our phones and electronics were taken away from us until after we had reached a decision, and the four-person then asked us to put our initial opinion down before we had any conversation. Test the waters so we could better direct any conversations and expedite the process. She gathered up all our slips of paper, then started reading out the verdicts. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty on all counts, not guilty. For all 12, a unanimous decision, and we'd only been in the room five minutes. We were all a bit shocked Also relieved. Maybe this happens more often than we think, but it seemed kind of odd to all of us. One of the members did ask to discuss a few details he was fuzzy on. We discussed for about 10 additional minutes, clearing up any uncertainty for him. All votes remained the same. We filled out the form. Not guilty on all counts. There's a phone in the room. You press a button, it calls the clerk. We told her we were ready. We reached a verdict. They then made us wait an additional hour until collecting us to read our verdict for the court. The prosecutor didn't look shocked. The defendant couldn't believe it. He was actually crying. The defense attorney looked like someone just presented her with an amazing piece of chocolate cake. (laughs) I felt... weirdly proud. I had no idea if this guy was actually guilty, but I felt like I'd done something good regardless like I had upheld the law as it was written, though that might be problematic in a lot of cases. The judge asked if the prosecutor wanted to pull the jury. He most definitely did. We all very emphatically agreed with the person, not guilty. He accepted this, begrudgingly. The judge was then told we were free to tell whomever we wanted about this trial, now that it had been concluded. He even went on to say that we could go up to a stranger on the street and tell them everything and i believe i said this out loud oh i will we were all very relieved to be done and sort of proud to have helped uphold the law but also a little sad to see each other go it's not like we spent a lot of time with each other but enough to have some sort of bond that seemed sad to break when we all left i know none of their names but I hope to run into them in the future. I have to hand it to the defense attorney. She nailed it. She connected everything in a brilliant way during her closing arguments. I was honestly worried during the opening statements that she wasn't going to pull through for the defendant, but I was really wrong about that. She was absolutely right. There was no need to drag out the proceedings or question witnesses into the ground. Everything hinged on assumptions. And if that assumption falls through, The rest of the House of Cards falls down with it. I have no doubt in my mind the detectives who testified believed wholeheartedly in their testimony. I also believe that they very well could have fallen victim to confirmation bias. There was so much information missing. And I can speculate until the cows come home about why that was. The woman they found with the drugs on her, who the defendant allegedly passed to her, was a drug addict. And drug addicts aren't typically called as witnesses for a lot of reasons. I get that. And someone not appearing as a witness has no effect on the judgment of guilt or innocence. And it's so easy to get trapped into this guilty mindset. If you step back and really presume someone innocent until proven guilty, then he's obviously innocent. They had nothing. No video, no witness identification beyond the detectives involved. Nothing. It's pretty amazing that the prosecutor thought he had a good case, playing off of the biases that he knows people have. Slimy, I guess, and sometimes effective, but not not this time. Whether or not the defendant was actually guilty isn't the issue. He may very well be guilty of all those crimes, but the state didn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm not willing to send a man who fits a vague general description that could apply to 35% or more of this city's population to jail for 10, 15, even 25 years based on an assumption. Hearing the four-person read the verdict made me very emotional. I felt good. I felt like maybe I'd helped someone, that I had done something productive and important. I didn't feel powerful or anything like that. I just felt like I had some small part in fixing such a broken system. And if we all take these little steps, maybe one day there won't be a disproportionate amount of black men in jail, and there won't be people spending decades of their lives in jail for nonviolent drug offenses. I am thankful for the officers involved for getting drugs off the street, no doubt. That's one thing we can all agree on but if they want to hold people responsible for the distribution of those drugs, they better damn well make sure they have a solid case. Now you're probably wondering, did you look up this guy after the trial was over? Of course I did. Of course I looked up this guy after the trial was over. I couldn't help myself, and maybe that was not the best decision. It didn't make me feel good to do that, But I had to know. Now, what I found doesn't change my opinion of the outcome of the case. The state did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the man they arrested was the man they saw possessing and distributing cocaine. And my opinion on that is never going to change. But my opinion on the defendant may have changed a bit. I found out in his record that most of his offenses were done in his late teens, early 20s, which was about 20 years ago, but about five years ago he was arrested, pled guilty, and served time for pretty much the same charges that he was just on trial for, possession and distribution of cocaine. After serving time, he was on probation for a couple of years as well. And this crime that happened in August of last year was a few months after his probation ended and a few days after his birthday, which was interesting. Now, you can speculate until the cows come home. You could say, oh, that's definitely him. He has a history of possessing and distributing cocaine, he pled guilty, he went to jail for it. Well, he was guilty. Don't you feel bad now? Not really. I think that based on some of the information from past episodes, predicting dangerousness and predicting reoffense is really complicated. And as we talked about before, just because you've done something before doesn't mean you're going to do it again. And that's a big part of the reason that they don't let you look up people in the middle of a trial. Because even if you knew all the things that I know, it's still going to bias you. You're still going to have these unconscious biases, even if you're trying to correct them in the moment. And even if he was guilty, that's not the point. The point is that the state has to have a solid case. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty. Otherwise, you can't convict him. And even if we knew the defendant was guilty, but the state hadn't proved it, we still can't charge them. We can't find them guilty. That sets a really dangerous precedent. And it would open up a lot of really dark timelines, if you want to think about it that way. And it would make it possible to convict people who are truly innocent based on, based on biases or based on beliefs that aren't true, aren't rooted in fact. So I think I have a better understanding of some of these higher profile cases where you know the defendant was obviously guilty but the jury didn't convict them and you're screaming at the television uh, or the news article or whatever it is you're 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 reading and, and you just can't believe it how could you not find him guilty I, I have a better appreciation for what those people went through now this wasn't a high profile case it wasn't a murder case it wasn't covered in the news at all it was one of those kind of -of run-of-the-mill criminal cases and but you still grapple with those feelings and those decisions because they are heavy and they are important and it shouldn't matter how popular or how serious of a crime it was we were still talking about people's lives and their future and that's a pretty heavy burden to carry for anyone. And it's really important to uphold the law, how it's written, and how it's meant to be interpreted. You know, once you start making exceptions and, and bending the rules, it just, the whole institution will fall apart. Now, I'm not saying the court system is perfect by any means. I think there are a lot of flaws in the way that it runs today, but that doesn't mean we can just throw all the rules out the window and do whatever we want. There are already so many innocent people behind bars who are executed, who are convicted based on faulty evidence or no real evidence at all. So even though these rules exist, and the jury I was on abided by them, it doesn't mean that all other juries are, are going to do the same thing. There's still a lot of people out there we need to fight for. I hope to share some of their stories with you in future episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this was a very different episode I didn't intend on making, but when you're thrown into a jury panel, and just felt compelled to relay all that information. I know that there are a lot of people who are interested in knowing more about the the behind-the-scenes jury experience. It's not as glamorous as you might think, it's definitely not as dramatic as television likes to present it, but I think it's an experience that everyone should have, at least once in their lifetime. It really puts things into perspective. Thank you for listening to the third episode of The Forensic Files. I will post the script for this episode on the shared Google Doc, the link for which will be in the notes. Uh, There won't be as many references for this episode because it is mostly a first-hand account from my experience, but I do have a handful of suggested readings i will be updating to go along with this content i also have a website for the podcast at the dash forensic-files.captivate.fm which will also be linked in the episode notes you can find me on instagram at the forensic files pod please reach out if you have any questions corrections suggestions or requests The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. You can listen to us on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'm still working on getting the podcast up on Google Podcasts, so if you're looking for it there, I regret to inform you that Google has not swept my information from the internet yet but hopefully that will be coming soon and I will let you know when it is available on Google Podcasts. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in this episode and all episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.